Attention, please. Eastern Airlines Flight 19, now ready for departure. Welcome aboard the Walt Disney World Express Monorail. Now, ladies and gentlemen, we're entering the vacation kingdom of the world. There's enough land here to hold all of the ideas and plans we could possibly imagine. We call it Epcot. Will be our experimental prototype city of tomorrow. Welcome to another episode of the Retro Disney World Podcast. Taking you back to the vacation kingdom of the world. The way it was and the way it is in your memories. Okay, welcome to episode 11 of the Retro Disney World Podcast. Uh, this episode is titled First Things First. I'm your host, Todd McCartney, and sitting within with me tonight, uh, this month as always, is Hal Bowers. Aloha. Welcome, Hal. Brian P. Miles. Greetings from the city of brotherly love, host to Pope Francis next week. That's right. He's coming. Coming down. Wow. And uh, JT Couser, how are you doing tonight, JT? Good. Good to be here. Excellent. So tonight we're going to be taking you back uh, to multiple things that happened first at uh, Walt Disney World. Uh, we're going to speak with uh, George and Becky Miranda shortly, who were there on opening day. And we're going to go into other some other things that happened uh, for the first time at, at Disney World, including uh, the very first airport was there. We're going to talk about some of the first families at the different theme parks and uh, get into a couple other firsts as well. So uh, before we get into that, we want to go back. I think, how you had something you wanted uh, to go over from last month, correct? I, well, it's a couple of months ago, actually. It's, oh, it's one okay. real quick correction. When, uh, when we were doing one of our Epcot episodes, uh, we were talking about the 1974 placement of uh, World Showcase. So, that, so before Marty went and put the two models together with John Hench, World Showcase was kind of its own freestanding thing. Mm-hmm. And from the, the models and things that I had seen uh, from that time period, it looked to me as if it was to the uh, east of the Ticketed Transportation Center where it was going to be located. But uh, over the weekend when I was doing some more research, I ran into a much better uh, architectural rendering. And it turns out they were actually going to build it in the Magic Kingdom parking lot right in front of the Ticket and Transportation Center. <laughs> so they would have just leveled that space and used that to build World Showcase and then presumably built a different parking lot someplace else. And there's a rendering that shows a monorail going to a station there and then continuing into this into the spur line and then to the hotels and uh, over to the Magic Kingdom. So... Believe it or not, and maybe they would have put that uh, parking lot right next to where they built the new World Showcase, so that they could have the original idea, so that you exit through a gift shop. That's right. <laughs> possibly. Can you imagine food and wine at the Ticket and Transportation Center, right? Oh yes, <laughs> going around there. <laughs> All right, sounds good. So we're going to get right into our uh, our special guests here. Let's give them a call. Hello. Hi, George. Yes. Hi, George. This is Todd McCartney in the Retro Disney World Podcast. How are you tonight? I'm doing pretty good. Excellent, excellent. Hi, Becky. Hi. How are you tonight? Oh, pretty good. Thank you very much for joining. On the phone with us is uh, George and Becky Miranda, and um, 
we got to know George and Becky through a recent post that George had put up on uh, on some additional websites outlining some photos that he took at the Magic Kingdom a number of years ago. Now, what piqued our interest is that um, George annotated that the actual photos were taken on the very first day that the Magic Kingdom was open. And um, we noticed that in there, as we're going to talk about a little later, that you know the crowds were kind of low, uh, didn't look very busy. And um, George's pictures basically went viral very quickly. And I know, George, we'll talk about a little later, too, as well as you've been working on having your son restore those. Um, but I sent a message to George, and I said, you know what, we just completed an episode on the first day uh, over at the uh, Disney MGM Studios, where Hal was there on the first day. And um, we had all these other first things we wanted to discuss. And I said, this is a perfect opportunity to bring somebody on. Um, and we've never spoken to anybody before who has been there at the Magic Kingdom on opening day. So, George and Becky, uh, wel- welcome to the show. Really appreciate you joining us tonight. Yeah, thank you. Happy to be here. So maybe you could kind of give us a little background of, uh, you know, how did you decide to go there? Was it part of your original honeymoon plans? And, and you know, how that day unfolded? We'd love to hear the different things that, that went on um, and what it really was like to be there on the, on the very first day. Well, I'll start off because I really was asked that question uh, on the uh, one of the uh, Facebook websites where people want to know, did I plan this in advance? Um, basically, I said, living in Ohio, our local media did not promote uh, Disney World all that much. Every once in a while, you may hear something about, you know, another park opening on the East Coast, possibly Florida. Uh, but once we got married and went to, we planned on going to uh, Daytona Beach. Once we were there, we watched the uh, television news, uh, mainly out of Orlando, and they kept uh, promoting uh, the fact that Disney World was going to open. And uh, we we said, okay, now we know what we're doing. We're going. <laughs> so you so you arrived in Florida just a couple days before then. It sounds like that's correct. We were married on the twenty fifth of September. And uh, we got down there to the Florida about, you know, a couple of days later. Wow. And uh, we, you know, just hung out on the beach and uh, did basically uh, tourist-type things. Yeah. It, not to be insensitive, but could you share, uh, like, roughly how old you were at the time? Were you guys in your 20s? Were you, like, new, new newlyweds? Or? He was 23 and I was 18. Okay. Nice. Very good. Just silly kids. <laughs> well, then you were perfect. That's, I think, the thing. And I, I think the amazing thing is that we could be uncovering the very first couple. Not, not only were you there first day, but it could have been the very first honeymoon at Walt Disney World. So, so you had a, a decided then to do a, a day trip over, and it, did you did you decide to definitely do it on day one? Was that part of your plans, or just how it how it planned out? No, we we decided to, to attempt it on the on opening day. Although the news media was expecting backup traffic, mm-hmm. you know, almost back to, to Daytona Beach, we <laughs> thought we'd give it a try. And and north end of Georgia. And that's amazing. Anything I've read about, uh, you know, the opening day experience and all of that, they all I read was I think they said that the, the state police and the governor, they were a little concerned the um, attendance uh, numbers kept growing and growing in the media, but um, I haven't seen much about it ever since. And they actually had uh, 
television news that showed um, either uh, state troopers or National Guard troopers on the highways um, stationed near the overpasses. They actually had, uh, and on our way there, we saw um, small single-engine aircraft in the median on the highway, um, helicopters. They had a special sign that was uh, loaded with all these like little silver discs, and it it said if you ha- if you're in distress, flash your bright lights, and somebody would come help you. <laughs> but there was, I mean, once we got on the road, we're like, oh my goodness, is is it really open or 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 what? Because there was no traffic, so there was there was nothing, and and that that's really interesting. So you you came down I four, and mm-hmm. so so no traffic on I four. And what what about actually you know turning on to to Disney property? It was the, any pomp and circumstance down there at the exit, or, or uh, just... it was a little confusing. We went to a there was a sign that said you know like Walt Disney World. I can't remember the exact terminology. It was like this exit. So we took that exit. And we drove for quite a bit, and uh, we saw no other signs. And we came across a building that, uh, in years since then, I think that may have been one of their administrative buildings, one of their first. It looked to me almost similar to the building we checked in at the uh, vacation villas one year, and we had to check in at this little uh building that was uh, out sort of in the wilderness. That sounds like you're talking about the uh, preview center that they then used to check people in for the for the villas in, in yeah, subsequent Yeah, I think years. so. And yeah. we stopped by because there wasn't any other, other buildings or anything around. And I stopped by and I said, I'm not the usual male. I don't have a problem with ask, asking for directions if I really <laughs> want to find something. <laughs> you know, no problem there. And uh, so we stopped, and there were some people there that had the little uh, Disney name tags. And uh, with that, they gave us directions to the park, and we said, is it open? And they said, oh, yeah. And uh, it was like, oh, yeah, no, we didn't close it. We're opening. <laughs> they gave me directions to the parking lot. And I don't know, about 15 minutes later or so, we were in the parking lot, paid our 50 cents to park. Ooh, that's uh, awesome. <laughs> Yeah, wasn't that nice? And we got a a, a tram from the parking lot. Uh, I think yeah. one of my photos shows that I think uh, there was like one other couple on the tram besides uh, the, the two of us. Now, George, <laughs> I, I got to stop you there when it comes to the tram. There, there's there's been some discussion that the very first trams at Disney World um, were pulled by these converted trucks if you will they were white i believe in nature and uh they didn't have enough pulling power do you do you recall what the you know what was heading up the tram that pulled you that day i don't know i don't think the picture shows shows the the front end it just shows us sitting in a seat and taking a shot toward the front and the tram itself was uh, white with orange seats um it was very new and shiny, but maybe it would have had trouble pulling the people if there were more on it. But with just four people, there was no trouble getting this up at transportation. Now, what, what time was this? Do, do you do you recall? Um, we actually got into the park. I think it was like about ten thirty. We overslept in Daytona. You know, <laughs> that's what everybody does in Daytona. Not on the road late, and uh, but we actually made it through, and actually went through the portals somewhere about ten thirty. And the monorail over too. Now, there's also been discussion that, and I think believe you're, I think you had a photo 
that um, that actually showed that, that that the contemporary wasn't completed at that time too. That as you went through it, there was some cranes hanging out um, through it. Do you, do you recall any of that? Yeah, I sure do. Uh, actually, through through this whole procedure of posting pictures and and communications, um, I actually got on a, uh, a Facebook website that has people who worked who were cast members mm-hmm. at Disney in the 70s. And I actually had a communication with a gentleman named Ted, who was actually a pilot of the monorail on opening day. Oh, wow. And I asked him, because when we got on the monorail, they told us, we are just going back and forth from ticket and transportation to the Magic Kingdom, and they went by way of uh, the Polynesian rather than go through the contemporary. They just, there was some sort of statement, I don't know the exact words, but basically, due to construction, we're not going through there. And the, the guy, Ted, who told me was, when they first opened early in that morning, they were on regular uh, monorail mode, and shortly thereafter, he said they went into something called shuttle mode, which meant just back and forth. Interesting. So they were just had one on each track, just back and forth, back and forth, not doing a loop. Because of right. the, uh, interesting. Wow. Yeah, there was no loop. And there's also been a lot of people have questioned me. I think this is where my son said, don't make any claims you can't support. Uh, but we, we said, as far as we knew, the contemporary was not open. I since was uh, contacted by a gentleman who was uh, part of the, uh, the staff there. Mm-hmm. And we communicated back and forth. And he said, it was open, but basically to... VIPs, sponsors, um, dignitaries, part of the Disney staff, but not to the general public. Gotcha. Okay. All right. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah, I, th- I think the general sort of perceived understanding is that the by mid-October, uh, when they did the grand opening, the like floor five and floor six in the tower were open, but the rest of the hotel was still under construction. Like they yeah. were still getting stuff packed in, so. Yeah, the gentleman who gave me that information also, uh, somewhere I'm not, I can't remember what website it was on, but he actually showed uh, had some blueprints, actual blue. He was on the construction crew, and or somehow he got blueprints of the contemporary, and they had it. They hadn't even um, slipped in the. Uh, I guess the 14th floor was where all the uh, the major suites were. And he said they weren't even in place yet. Wow. Oh, wow. So they, they barely got it open. If, if you can so they were still sliding in the chests of drawers. The chests of drawers. Also told that the Polynesian um, wasn't, it was open but not completely, and any overflow that was there was being sent to the contemporary. Now, this I can't confirm, but this is what somebody told me, and it sounded more accurate to, mm-hmm. from what I saw versus what I've read on the internet and, uh, you know, multiple places said all these places were open. And then I read another one that said, oh, no, it wasn't open till November. I, mean, I think that was the uh, the uh, campgrounds. But right. on the 25th, they had Jonathan Winters in the TV special. He was over at the campgrounds. Doesn't mean it was open, but... <laughs> <laughs> Jonathan Winters was there. That's right. Yeah, we did in one of our previous episodes. We talked about how that that opened later because it was kind of a uh, an after. Well, I should say afterthought. It was like, oh, well, well, yeah, we have to put this campground together, and they were a little little late with it. So, so it's ten thirty. You you you've entered the Magic Kingdom. 
Um, that's for our listeners who aren't familiar. Back then, it was a, a simple cost to get in, and then you you got uh, you know for a few dollars, and then you got you received your tickets for the A through E tickets, depending on what attraction you were going on. So, what was the turnstiles like back then, uh, and and what were the crowds at ten thirty getting in? Uh well, actually, when we went to Ticket and Transportation to buy our book of tickets, when we got off of the tram, the uh, some of the people who were in those uh, little cages, booths, whatever you call it, they were waving their arms to let us know, hey, come over here, we're open. <laughs> um, they were trying to solicit people to come up to the booths there. Uh, there were some people just kind of milling around, probably didn't know what to do, but not many. Now, what? how did tickets work that day? Like, you didn't give one at the gate, right? Yeah, you had, we bought a booklet of tickets, and it included an admission ticket. And then, I don't know, we had several e-tickets, d-tickets, and so forth. If I'm not mistaken, they gave a monetary equivalency. Um, They told us that basically an a-ticket was worth 10 cents, and the hot shot rides, the e-tickets, they were worth 90 cents. Okay, and what did you guys buy, just one book each, or how did you do that? At the initial entry, and then I know we bought another book, and it was like they were only like I, I'd have to go look at my notes, but I think it was, I've got I've still got the ticket books. It was like three seventy five. Oh, wow, <laughs> or like for I, I think it was eight attractions, or mm-hmm, because we went again in seventy four, and I think we got uh, eleven. You got a book with eleven admission and eleven, and I think that was like five something and that was three years later so for everybody who calls it an e-ticket attraction we should just start called 90 cent attractions right (laughs) yeah basically i think they tried to come across with all of you people who are used to going to like the state fair or carnivals and you would buy little individual tickets that were maybe worth 10 cents a piece or or what have you and it gave you an idea if you rode the big uh, I think back in the day, some of the ones that they would put together was like a, a wild mouse or something like that. Mm-hmm. That would cost you more than uh, the, the, kid, the kids merry-go-round. Right. Uh, when we went in through the turnstiles, uh, right, to, you know, right into the, to the front of the Magic Kingdom, uh, some of the photos I have show uh, Disney characters you know, there was Winnie the Pooh and Eeyore and uh, Goofy and Pluto. Um, I mean, and they were just kind of walking around looking for people. Definitely not, not many children at all. Yeah, and one of your photos, uh, I mean, you're standing in front of probably the photo that everybody takes, which is standing in front of the, the train station, in front of the flower bed. Mm-hmm. And you have so many, a couple pictures here, and there's just, there's nobody upstairs on the train platform in, in all three shots. There's nobody standing next to you. There's there's just no one there. <laughs> one of the uh, cast members, one of the young ladies that wore the uh, like the the little blue caps and the riding crop. Yeah. Uh, she asked if she could take our picture, and we said, "Oh, please." <laughs> and uh, so that's that's how we got a picture. And there was absolutely nobody in sight. We didn't have to clear a path or wait until somebody, you know, got out of the camera range. <laughs> it's st- that's still amazing, though, even if that was later in the day. There's just, it's like a ghost town, it looks like. You're brand new. I know some one of the pictures, you're, you're outside uh, the guest services. You've got the, 
the one of the retro maps in your hand that we all love. Um, what did you guys decide to do first? Obviously, you're new. The world's new to it. Where where did you go first? The train, so we could go around the park and kind of see what all was there to get our bearings. We still that's the first thing we ride when we go into the Magic Kingdom for some strange reason. Mm-hmm. So you guys did a loop. Did you stop anywhere? Or did you just do a full loop and then get off back at Main Street? Yes, we did the full loop. Yeah, it didn't. It, there was no station over in. Uh, over, well, I actually have a photo. They were still completing Pecos Bills. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The the picture there, the outside. It's 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 not completed. The the pavement is super red and it looks like it was just paved yesterday. There's maybe one person in the background. Um, you went around through the the Native American area, and so there was no uh, there was no Frontierland train station yet. Is that correct? Uh, it was built, but it wasn't open. Okay, oh. I don't so even know if it was built. I can't remember. It, yeah, it was there, but they weren't letting you off because there wasn't anything in Frontierland much. Okay, like, but it did, there was no stop. It was a complete loop. Right. So you really didn't have a choice. Boils <laughs> 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 down to. So I assume then you then you walked up Main Street USA from there and and yeah, just kind of you know I mean it was just sort of like uh, wow I can't I can't believe we're here just you know I th- I think the view down Main Street looking at the castle I mean there's no other view like it in the world uh, well maybe there is I have never been to Paris or Tokyo <laughs> but uh, you know it is just a really kind of a uh, you just sort of standing there with your jaw dropped and go, "Wow!" <laughs> and it just was—it was just really kind of cool, and you know, and standing there like there was so much to see with just uh, all the little shops all the way down the street. You know, there were there were just a lot of and uh, the aromas of uh, candy and uh, popcorn and. You know, just sort of like an amusement park, but it even smelled better. Yeah. And we'll just take a second to remind the listeners that when the park opened, the stores were actually all unique. It wasn't just Disney merchandise in every store. There was a lot of different stores going on. The tobacconist, the card shop, there's quite a bit of watch store. I mean, they were almost kind of independent and and quite unique. So had you guys been to Disneyland before or was this your first uh, trip to a Disney theme park? I had. I had been to Disneyland uh, back in the late 50s, I believe, maybe early 60s. And uh, I was with uh, my parents. So having been to Disneyland before, what were your what was kind of your first reaction when you saw the scope and the size of, uh, of the Magic Kingdom here? Yeah, I mean, to me, it was like. You know, it was a whole different world. The the Disneyland seemed to have a lot of stuff close together. Very nice, but compact, well-designed. And just the scope and size of of the Magic Kingdom in Florida was just, you know, that was something that uh, was just a little bit different. Walking uh, just off of the hub from uh, Main Street going over towards... Uh, out in front of the Crystal Palace. I mean, it was just very, very nicely landscaped. The water was almost just totally clear. You could see uh, they had a, a swan ride that was not operating, but you could see the tracks very, very clearly of where it was supposed to go. So let's see. So you walked down Main Street. So uh, did you eat something first or did you go try to get on a ride? Uh, we got a ride. 
We did what? We went on rides. All right. <laughs> Memory. Well, I, I see him in the cars. Like, what are those with the horses and that? Is, did you take one of those? They sometimes. The, the horse drawn. Oh, yeah. Horse. I've got a picture, uh, a really good shot of a horse's rear end. <laughs> and it wasn't me or anybody in particular. It was actually a horse. <laughs> and we were sitting on there, and I think that only had maybe one or two people on it. And uh, we rode that all the way down uh, Main Street. And that was kind of unique because, uh, you know, you could just kind of ride along very slowly and take in the sights. And I think that's pretty much what we did almost all day, just not being in any crowds. We weren't in, in any real rush, um, just looking at everything. And a lot of things we saw multiple times. We traveled around the park quite a bit, just... Uh, we didn't know that they were going to close uh, when they did at 6. We, having been to Disneyland, I thought, well, maybe they'll be open late and have fireworks and all that. But they didn't. Right, right. So it, it looks like after that, did you did you go into Adventureland after that? Adventureland, yes, we did. Um, I know I was fascinated with the steel drums that they had there, and their uh, resonance just always kind of, uh, as a musician, I just love different sounds and how you can make really beautiful music with uh, something as uh, simplistic as an old oil drum. Right, right. And, and the photo that you've got of that, too, is uh, that was before they moved over into Caribbean Plaza, too, before that was that was built. So it was over. Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah, that's an early, early shot of, of uh, that the... What's, what's the name of the band? Uh, oh, JP and JP. the Silver Stars. That's it, that's it, yep. Oh really? Okay. <laughs> and they yeah, put, they, just, they, they just, played there for they played there for years, right? They had a couple albums, one or two albums, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, it's the way the the way the sound worked from there. I don't know. It was a very good acoustic location that they had because it it just kind of resonated through that whole plaza. It was mm-hmm. really a uh, very a lot of fun. It looks like if you see my pictures, it looks like I was pretty well fascinated with uh, the Jungle Cruise. <laughs> you got a they couple got, of great shots. Got in a whole there. roll of film in there. there. There, I never met an elephant I didn't like, especially if it was uh, animatronic. Well, you captured something that a lot of uh, people who like the old Disney World retro Disney. Um, we've had some film of it before, but we've never seen a really good still shot. And you did capture something. Um, it's the, it's the frogs and they were very, very short lived there. They were on both sides of the boat. I think there's about eight or nine on each side. How, how, Brian, how long did they last for? They weren't there very long, right? I think they were taken out in 73. Is that correct, Hal? It might've even been quick. It might've just been a matter of weeks before they were moved. Yeah. It was very fast. I've heard people tell me that, but I never knew that. And I looked at my picture and it was kind of blurry. I think at least one of the frogs actually... Uh, was animatronic. I think it moved a little. Yep. Yeah. I think yeah. A, a couple of them, right? Yeah, we know the story is that Dick Nunes, who was the president of Disney World, uh, thought they looked hokey and told them to take them out. But I don't remember the... I know it was quick, but I don't remember the time frame. And I, I'll I tell you what, in, in my picture, one of the things that looks kind of hokey, and I thought it did live, too, was the... Uh, I guess it was a... I don't know if it was supposed to be a, a python or whatever... The snake that was hanging in the tree. Yeah. The tree did not have a lot of foliage yet, and I think that made the snake look a little bit more unreal. 
Mm-hmm. Um, I think the next, you know, when we went back on the Jungle Cruise later, I kind of noticed that the snake was kind of camouflaged with some of the, the greenery, and it looked a little bit more, uh, not necessarily frightening, but looked like it, <laughs> it belonged there a little more than just like hanging on a bare branch. Right, right. <laughs> uh, you've got some great shots of, of you know, the the original boats that were there and, and, and Trader Sam um, and the African savanna scene, which now is so overgrown. It doesn't look like a savanna anymore. It just looks like a, uh, a jungle. But uh, George, you mentioned that you took an entire roll of film in the jungle cruise. How many rolls of film did you shoot that day? Um, the first roll of film, I believe that I took was actual prints. Um, and we had, actually we just bought this uh, this little camera, an Olympus camera, prior to uh, our honeymoon. It was basically a 35 millimeter camera that was supposed to be as easy as a, an Instamatic or whatever, just kind of point and shoot. And uh, my son had criticized I shouldn't have pointed and shot directly into the sun. <laughs> Rolls of film, I would probably say there was 36 on a film, on a roll, and I have a total of uh, probably about 100 and, 170 maybe total images that are actual photos. Wow. wow. Did you guys go so, to the and, camera center at all, or did you just have all that like on hand? You were prepared. No, I didn't. We went to the GAF photo store right across from the Emporium and bought uh, prepaid mailers. Oh, yeah. And when I shot a roll of film, uh, I put it in the mailer and dropped it in one of the little blue mailboxes that they had uh, on several locations, especially around Main Street. I mean, I mailed those uh, rolls of film right from Main Street. And they <laughs> did, were, they, did it take a while to get to your house that it was on Main Street or did it seem just normal? It's, uh, if I'm not mistaken, they were waiting for us when we got home from oh. our honeymoon. <laughs> That's, That's fantastic. Awesome. Uh, yeah, I thought that was pretty cool. One, a couple of your shots have the the mailboxes in it. Some of your Main Street shots, you can see the blue oh. letter boxes. It's so hard to find any place to mail, let alone buy postcards or anything like that today. Well, so it was you, it you was cool to me card. because I think I got a shot of the mailbox because at the time I was a letter carrier. Oh, okay. <laughs> curious about uh, their meals and what and where they might have eaten that day in the Magic Kingdom. Okay, I believe one of the first things we had, and there was some debate in the family. I said, I thought we had a hot dog and a Coke uh, right in the uh, the corner place where the uh, piano player on the right. bicycle piano. Yes. And uh, by the way, I even had a communication from him. I mean, it seems weird. 44 years later almost, and and that guy saw the picture, and he sends me a, a message off of their uh, Facebook site saying, that was that was me. <laughs> Is it that guy that still plays there today? He still plays there today, a couple days a week. Yeah, I, I've spoken to him and, and sat down with him and talked to him a couple times when I was there, and that, that that's... That's awesome. Yeah, he's been playing there since since day one. So if anybody of you have seen the piano player, and I don't know if you guys saw the photo of what he's playing on, is I've never seen that before either. The piano is actually on a a cart, right? It, it looks like they could pull oh, him through yeah. the pull through the parade. Yeah, 
there were like two wheels on the, it was an upright uh, white piano. There were two wheels on it, and then he sat on a seat that was on a single wheel in the back. But when we saw him, he was stationary. He wasn't pedaling around. Mm-hmm. Right. So I, I think they had those pianos on wheels at Disneyland, and they had it here for a while, but that piano, that piano is now stationary uh, in the backside of, of Casey's Corner, and there's no wheels on it anymore. Right, right. Which is... Which is pretty sad, but that's that's a cool thing. Uh, Jim's the guy's name, right? I believe. I, yeah, I think you're right. I think you're right. Now, that's amazing. Yeah, <laughs> we have we have to have him on sometime. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, well, uh, continuing with eating, we had a hot dog and a coke there, and I think uh, you know we may have uh, gone into the candy shop. I think even at the time, every once in a while they had little trays out with some free samples, mm-hmm. and I mean they were make one of the things that seemed like they were making a lot of was fudge. And you could smell chocolate all the way up and down Main Street. I mean, like I said, the fragrances there were really wonderful. And then in the, uh, I don't know what they called those, halfway down Main Street, they were like almost like little alleyways or side streets. And one of them was just totally filled with fresh flowers. We we talk about that one all the time. There yeah. People constantly uh, stopped and took pictures there, and it's uh, one of the things that I I think a lot of people very fondly miss. Finally decided to get something to eat later that day, and we went into um, the restaurant that is now Tony's. At the time, it was run by Hormel, mm-hmm. and I the hospitality. Yeah, Becky says it's a it was a hospitality house, and we had a very nice meal there. Um, it was, it was very nice, a nice sit down meal. And, uh, I took a pic- couple pictures inside. Once again, I was shooting from inside and getting the uh, bright Florida sun outside the windows. And one I thought was cool was like they had a stained glass window. Now I'm not sure if that's there now or not. I don't know if it's there, but I know that the picture you took is really cool of it. I, I remember looking at it and saying, wow, look at that. Yeah, I, I, was known for taking unusual photos. I never considered myself a photographer, but uh, uh, I always had, so, all of a sudden, you know, I figured if you took a lot of pictures, you're bound to get a good one. Yeah. <laughs> but I'm so glad that you took as many pictures as you did of everything that you did, because the stuff that's in there, there's a lot of stuff that's just so fascinating to, you know, us total nerds about what what was, you know, not only things that are there, but like things that aren't there. Uh, so I'm bless you for just shooting like a bad man. Exactly. Beautiful. So weird yeah. angles that come uh, across so I, differently. Yeah, I, I, I think your stained glass picture was actually taken from the veranda restaurant the, in Adventureland, based on the the chairs and the garbage cans and stuff that are around it. But I'll just I really I yeah, it may have been that wasn't that the uh, oh the the uh, Kikomon. Yep. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, and I can't remember if we got anything there or not. I know we got. Uh, we got some fr- refreshment from the Florida uh, Sunshine area. That was the uh, mm-hmm. Florida Citrus Growers, I think, sponsored that. Correct, yes. And uh, I know we got something there. And one of the things that, that uh, we really enjoyed, they, were, they did sell Cinderella's Punch at a little uh, stand near the castle. And it was sort of a grape lemonade. And it was cold and very refreshing on a, on a hot day. And after that, we never found it again, but they were <laughs> still serving it in, uh, in the, uh, 
the banquet room, King Stephens. Oh, oh okay. Yeah. So you were there in adventure, and now you couldn't go through as you as you mentioned earlier. Pecos Bills was under construction, and and, and the uh, the Frontierland right. train station. So you had to go back out. Um, and I'm just judging from you know your timeline photos and stuff that you then went ahead and, and looks like you went over to Frontierland and then may have uh... got a picture of Becky standing there, and I said she was looking kind of tired. I said, well, we need to take a relaxed boat ride, so we went on to Mike Fink. Uh, and we actually, I believe, rode the gully whomper. The gully whomper. <laughs> yeah. You have a good picture of the load of that. Uh, yeah. The, the, where they loaded the people onto it. It's a yeah. good shot. And you have a very interesting photo, too. There's a picture of the Admiral Joel Fowler. And um, uh, we, we had Bill Cork on who talked about the how big the paddles were on the paddle wheel on the back. What, but what's interesting is that the nameplate is absent from the back of the ship. Um so that that's a, a really interesting that, that that was not even there on the first day. They didn't even have the, the boat. I don't know if it wasn't christened or if they just it, didn't have it. It was paint. not running the first day. They were painting it. It was wet paint. Really? Oh. <laughs> painting the floor. Really? And there was uh, another person that I spoke to from the Disney. Uh, we worked at Disney. He, uh, he saw the picture of the uh, uh, four hour. Oh, Refresh me. What was the restaurant there? The Liberty Tree. Mm-hmm. Right. And he said that their area chef, I think he said his name was Chef Akai, and he told he, this gentleman, uh, his name is Steve, he started working there later in the 70s, he said, but the chef told him that on opening day they had to put people at the doorway to, because the paint around the doors there was still wet as well. And he said that my photo proved that. <laughs> yeah, he's got a person standing right at two cast members standing out on the porch. Uh, I saw yeah, that conversation. I said it's about the same color of paint as the as the, the Joe Fowler uh, riverboat. Maybe it was the same guys using the same paint, and it was a slow drying paint. <laughs> <laughs> now, speaking exactly. of, speaking of your of the Skyway, uh, some of the pictures you've got, you you shot some fantastic angles. There's, the picture I love the best is is you're on the bucket and then you took a shot directly towards the Fantasyland station. You see the Honda Mansion in the distance and and then what would become where um, uh, Big Thunder Mountain is. But I mean, you can really really see how well the landscape of that area was was designed and uh, until it all you know grew in a number of years ago. And then obviously as we know that area has been been changed dramatically since then. But really, really plays well to seeing it from the air. And then a couple of your other shots, um, you know, you've, you've got Dumbo, how simplistic Dumbo looks. Um, the very, very simple spinner ride. Um, so, yeah, some absolutely uh, wonderful shots from the air. Yeah, I mean, you've got a, you got a pretty good... Uh, I don't think that one was marked as a, a, a uh, photo shot. Well, GAF had the... The film rights for the the park at the time, but a lot of times I think after that they had places marked as uh, with a Kodak side, like a Kodak uh, Kodak Photoshop. I I can't I I kind of remember that I'm not sure where they had a little sign up letting you know this is a good place to take a picture. That's right. You're absolutely right. Yep. Yeah. Oh, and you mentioned Big Thunder Mountain. We have another first. We were in 1980. Yeah, uh, we were there in 1980, and we were eating uh, at Pecos Bills uh-huh. and talking to some of the cast members and told them that we were there on opening day, and they kind of came over and told us uh, 
why don't you guys hang around a little bit? They had film crews there, and they were opening Big Thunder that day. Wow. And we weren't the first to ride on it, but we did. And uh, they had it running a little slower because they had, like, a film camera mounted, or I don't know if it was a Disney product, but mm-hmm. or possibly uh, local TV. But they had one kind of, like, mounted up on the, the uh, engine looking back through the cars. Right. So after your Skyway, it looks like you, you may have ended up in, in, in uh, uh, Fantasyland and then off to Tomorrowland. Now, was 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea running? Did, did you happen to get on that? It was not running. It was not running. Wow. No. I had a picture. They had um, a cast member there in the Captain Nemo-type uh, costume that they all wore explaining what was going to be there and how it was going to operate and so on and so forth. Uh, but they were not. Uh, there was no no boats. I think one of the one of the shots that I had from the Skyway bucket shows twenty thousand leagues, and uh, from that shot, I, you don't see any of the submarines. So uh, I don't know if they had an area back behind the waterfall in like a little cave there where they kept them, but there didn't seem to be any of them uh, in the water that you could see. Then when it uh, looks like you went on the uh, speedway, which yes, yeah. I I did snap a picture. I evidently I got off the car first, and I stopped just as Becky was uh, walking after she got out of the the little car, the vehicle, and she was driving, you know, walking up the little uh, walkway there to exit, and uh, I got a picture of her as she is exiting. So we did drive around there. And yep. you you're one of the few people to drive it when it was at its longest because it only lasted that that specific size for what was it how three years maybe oh yeah when they as soon as they started construction on space mountain yeah uh, they chopped off part of it I, i've got a you know comment to our listeners on on and i know jt you 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 said the same thing about the photos of of the fountains um out front of tomorrowland i mean they're just they're the gorgeous spires the water's coming down there's a you have a fantastic photo george taken from around the castle and um, there's two people standing on the bridge into Tomorrowland, silhouetted by the the fountain, um, you know, in the background and the water gushing down. It's just a, a awesome, awesome picture. But I mean, boy, times have changed. But that that whole area is, is just beautiful. You, you captured it really well. Oh, thank you. I I thought they were just, you know, at the time I'm like, man, this it was pretty futuristic looking to have mm-hmm. kind of a a fountain waterfall type effect and. So I tried to get pictures of water because Disney did have a lot of it running through the park. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Very clean too. That's the yeah. thing that gets me every yeah, time I look yeah. at these. Yeah, was. Now, what what time was that about? As as you made your way through Tomorrowland, what 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 time of the day are we now? That was running towards the probably after five o'clock. Okay, and what time were they open? I, that's an estimate, but I think we kind of worked our way around there and then back down Main Street. Mm-hmm. Okay. Do you know what time they were supposed to close? I read that they were supposed to close at 6, but we never even asked. And they did. They closed at 6. And then we were kind of told, some people said, oh, they closed early because there just weren't very many people here. Right. But I have read since that that was their plan at the outset. Now, Brian, you, you did some research and got the actual uh, attendance day figures for, for opening day, correct? Yeah, Marty Sklar's book, uh, he talks about how the Florida Chamber of Commerce was predicting to the press and and uh, 
George has recounted to us the media coverage down there indicated the same, like, oh, we're expecting a quarter million, a half million people. The, you know, there's going to be, uh, uh, you know, the the rapture is coming. And uh, on on opening day, they had uh, 10,422 guests. So it was significantly less than than they had anticipated. Although Disney maintained that that was just about what they expected. It's why they opened up on a weekday in October. Uh, did not want uh, school kids or anyone else there. They wanted to spend a few weeks because the official opening where Roy Disney was there and made his speech and all and dedicated the park was not for a couple of weeks. Right. Yep. One thing. One thing, though, I think I noticed. If you know there were ten thousand four hundred and some people there, they didn't stay all day. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so, so from there, you you took the monorail back and 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 the tram backwards and and headed back to the car and back to Daytona that that evening. Right. I think Becky wrote in her book we were back uh, in Daytona somewhere about seven thirty. Mm-hmm. She kept just a small journal. Uh, we went back to Daytona and pretty much, uh, I think we got a, got a pizza uh, like nine, 10 o'clock that night and just kind of hung out in our room. And, and, uh, you know, that was pretty much it. And we didn't make plans to go back. We figured, I mean, we, we rode the, like the haunted mansion, like three times. And we, there was never any wait at any of those times. Wow. Yeah. You've got a picture of the queue and it's just wide open so I'm, I'm looking at a list of what they said were the the actual attractions open that day so i'll just go down the list real quick and you tell me whether or not you went on them so country bear jamboree yeah yep okay dumbo yep yep uh uh the jungle cruise yeah yeah mad mad tea party yep yeah peter, pa- peter pan's flight no we didn't go on peter pan no we didn't okay uh the carousel Yes. Yes. Yep. Okay. Swiss Family, the yep. treehouse. Yep. Yep. Hall of Presidents. Yep. Yep. Okay. Haunted Mansion. You already said the yep. Speedway. You already said the train. You said uh, Tiki Room. Yeah. yeah. And uh, yes. it's a small world. Yes. Yes. All right. So you you pretty much did everything, everything. that you could do, with the exception of of uh, Peter, Peter Pan. Pan's flight. But day. they did want to mention three times, so we'll give them credit for a full day. <laughs> you know what? If I could do that day today, I would be so happy. Yeah. <laughs> so George and Becky, I I you know I know you're going to be posting the photos. You you, you originally put them up, and um, you know your, your your pictures went crazy. Everybody started putting them together and taking a look at them. It was really exciting for you. And I know your son has been working on restoring them, cleaning up, uh, cropping and fixing color and adjusting it. And uh, once you get those out there, we're going to let our listeners know, you know, where you have them. So everybody can go peruse these pictures, um, take a look at them and, uh, you know, and see what we're, what we're talking about. But, um, you know, I, I really want to extend a, a thank you and uh, for for coming on board here tonight and 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 sharing your story with us. It's been absolutely fantastic. Um, JT, how Brian? Anything else to ask uh, George and Becky? Or I do have one last question. So, first of all, I want to say uh, happy anniversary coming up on October first, your forty fourth. Oh. Yeah. Well, uh, thank you much. And uh, are you going back? For your 45th anniversary on October 1st uh, in 2016, probably not. We uh, we're we're taking our son, his wife, and our granddaughter, who will be five, 
and I originally looked, you know, I retired, and I said, oh, I'm on a fixed income, and blah, 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 and we originally made reservations over at, like, the Pop Century to save a buck, and my knees aren't very good, and I looked at all the walking, and I said, you know, I ain't going to live forever, baby, so uh, we booked uh, the Polynesian get closer to the loop and uh, we're going to go back in April, the end of April. Excellent. Excellent. They want to go before he goes to school. And, and, um, good Lord willing. And if we're in good enough health, we do want to go for our 50. Cool. Very nice. All Very right. nice. Well, when you come down in April, get in contact with us and sir, I will buy you a beverage of your choice at the Polynesian. <laughs> Okay. Uh, okay. I, I read on the website something about a lapu lapu or something oh, like that. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. That's, that's a good goodie. one. How was the resident? <laughs> oh. How was the resident master of tropical cocktails? That's right. Oh, good. <laughs> so, George and Becky, I, I can't thank you enough for for coming on. Um, this is what you know. Fantastic story of first day, your, your honeymoon there. Um, you know, unbelievable photos that you've got. We'll make sure that everybody out there gets to be able to see them. Um, but really, really thank you. Appreciate your time this this evening talking uh, talking with us. Thank you very much, and it was fun. This was my first podcast. Didn't even know what they were about a week ago, but uh, it was a it was it was a whole heck of a lot of fun and great memories. So I mean, it's really kind of fun to talk about. Thank you guys a bunch. You all were uh, very knowledgeable about uh, what we were talking about. Even gave me some hints, you know? <laughs> Great. We hope you'll come back and talk to us again sometime. Yes, we'd okay, like to hear about some of your later trips. Yeah, we want to hear from 1980, and so and we've got some early Epcot stuff. It would be fantastic. Okay. Well, thank That'll you. Work me. Bye-bye, Thanks, guys. guys. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. Have a great night. All right. Well, big, big thank you to George and Becky Miranda for joining us tonight. Um, fantastic first day Magic Kingdom uh, memories and photos and all sorts of great stuff there. So continuing on our, our theme for this month, uh, first things first. Last month, when uh, Hoot and Howe discussed uh, the first family that was chosen on the first day of Disney MGM Studios opening, um, he indicated that the, the family who, who was really first, who camped out, uh, was was cherry wasn't the one that actually received the first family uh, treatment. They uh, Michael Eisner came around and, and pointed randomly to another family and essentially picked them out of the crowd, if you will. So we decided to go through some of the old archives and find out what happened with the first families at the other parks. Brian, you did some research on uh, the Magic Kingdom, and um, there were some interesting things that happened. So on opening day, uh, as they were preparing to. You know, let the press in and everybody, they they picked a family from the crowd assembled there. It was the Windsor family, uh, and it was a husband and wife and their two boys. And they were, you know, given the uh, lifetime silver pass uh, to the Disney park, uh, which would ultimately be applicable to all the Disney parks that they opened. And the... Uh, they, they, they were a photogenic family. In fact, the father was described as looking like uh, Jack Nicholas. He was being mistaken for Jack Nicholas at the time, not Jack Nicholson, Jack Nicholas the golfer. And uh, they made a habit of coming to the parks frequently because they lived nearby. Uh, they became something of a... I don't want to say a problem, uh, but legendary uh, in that I recall seeing, you know, I thought it was in Marty Sklar's book, and it was either Marty Sklar or Charlie Ridgway. I saw then 
maybe in one of our live appearances where they mentioned that this family became something of a pain in the butt over the years, constantly calling, saying that they were bringing friends from out of town in, saying that they wanted, uh, you know, extra special treatment here and there, uh, you know, years and years after <laughs> after opening day. In fact, there was a 1991 story in uh, in the Orlando Sentinel, you know, the 20th anniversary of the park noting that they still visited pretty regularly. So they certainly got their their money's worth for that uh, initial visit back in 1971. Uh, became a little bit of an embarrassment, ran into some legal issues uh, the, the, the husband did uh, in the late 80s. And, uh, of course, it makes the paper of, you know, Disney's first family. It's, it's this. So... Uh, it Don't was, forget about his his the worm farm scam in the well, late right. 70s, he was, too. <laughs> He was. You can you can read up on him. We'll post, <laughs> we'll post the article. It's it's interesting. We'll post, we'll post the links. I don't want to slander anybody here. I'm sure they're lovely people. Uh, and by as far as we know, they still live in in the area. The family still lives in the area. But uh, that was the Magic Kingdom's first family. What I find interesting in the article too it says Bill Windsor admits these days that he and his family were not the first in line at the park on October first, nineteen seventy one. Four college boys were ahead of them. That wasn't you and you and how that wasn't you and who, right? <laughs> <laughs> no, no. In 1971, I was certainly not a college boy. That's right. I just thought that was funny how it was college. So, so how you and I did some research on Epcot and uncovered some interesting things. Now, why don't you tell about the actual cherry picked first family, and then I'll, sure. I'll talk about the the next one. So let's uh, let's fast forward to 1982, and uh, this time it's the Kaysen family who lives in Winter Park who are selected as the first family. They also got the coveted Silver Pass. Um, and, uh, they claim that they, uh, were able to get their, uh, their pass by being there at four 30 in the morning. I'm sorry. They're up at four 30 in the morning, got there at 6 AM, which sounds familiar. Sounds like our story a little bit. <laughs> uh, and then, uh, were chased away by security guards. Also very familiar with, uh, with my experience. Um, but eventually they kept driving in a loop and parking on shoulders. And then eventually they scooted in as soon as the parking lot opened and they told the kids to run for the gates. <laughs> so, um, they did. And, and oddly enough in the VIP section, uh, watching this entire thing were the Windsor family. So the Windsor family actually got brought back for the opening of Epcot as well. But there was another first family or at least someone who thought that they should be the first family. And Todd, I will hand it over to you. Yeah. For so, that interesting story. so the Hall family of Melbourne um, claims that they were the first family at Epcot. And uh, he actually took Disney to, to a lawsuit over this, um, stating that uh, the night that Epcot opened, he hid in the woods for two hours uh, in the late, in late night, uh, while the rest of the family, they're, Two, uh, two children waited in the family car for the parking lot to open. Uh, I guess out on the street like you, Hal, you know, <laughs> waiting That's for right. that parking lot to open. Um, and and it basically what he claims is that when he ordered an opening day ticket, the, the ticket agent instructed him that to be the first family, the instruction was to be here first. So he said, well, why not? So um, long story short, and again, we'll post articles on this too, you know, they showed up and they weren't uh, uh, they, they weren't chosen, so he decided to take them to to court afterwards, and um, 
he feels that they were baited. He says, you baited everybody. You don't find 4,000 cars waiting to be the first one in, in there unless people believe there will be a lifetime pass for the first family into the park. So he kind of had an idea of the, of the silver, silver ticket, silver pass we're talking about uh, and claims that uh, we'll leave it up to the facts to speak for themselves. I have not found any um, additional information on whatever happened. I can only assume it was either settled or, or tossed out of court. So... Um, but so if the Hall family is out there and would like to tell us the other half of the story, we'd love tell to us, know. tell us about your overnight stay in the woods. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's eerily similar to how I, yeah. like to know. I don't know why I didn't think about staying in the woods. It's so smart. <laughs> it makes sense. Total yeah. Sense. I feel bad for the, for the family on the street. Yeah. So that must've been, must've been a wonderful experience for the wife and children. That's right. My, so, uh, my so, favorite part of that story is, uh, Charlie Ridgway, who was the PR director for for Walt Disney World for the longest time, uh, when the press said that the Hall family was suing him, was suing Disney, and the circumstances of the suit, his response was, well, I look forward to that. (laughs) (laughs) And you know what the suit was for, too? It says right here, he's asking the suit that his family be awarded a lifetime free pass. So, you know... Uh... So if anybody has any follow-up information on the first families and any of this, feel free to uh, to send us an email. All right, now we're going to move on to another first that is then going to go into a discussion that many a listener have actually requested. So we're going to talk now about the first airport on property. Now, I know most of our listeners out there going, yeah, you're going to talk about the Stolport. Well, we're going to get there. But believe it or not... Um, in the property that Disney purchased uh, was actually already an airfield. And uh, there's quite a bit of uh, information on this on a website that we found, and we'll certainly post the link that you can see it. Um, You'll recognize a lot of the names. If you're familiar with the roads around there, you'll see where Bronson comes from and and all and other other roads. But um, there was an air park, uh, as it was called, Airlando, built in 1959. It uh, just had a hangar and an office and a lounge. It was essentially a, a grass strip. And um, in fact, one of the, the, the people that recalls uh, uh, the airstrip being there was, you know, actually said that his father took flying lessons from the, the, the strip when it was there. Uh, the, it was in the, in the actual purchase uh, that, you know, the land purchase that Disney made. And uh, it's certainly on the... Um, uh, old aerial photography that we've had, we've been able to locate it, and it was there for a number of years. And if anybody's interested in the exact location, um, if anybody knows on Buena Vista Drive, where the Reedy Creek Fire Department is, uh, that's Fire Station Number Four, just behind the Reedy Creek Fire Station, is a running track, and that is a very uh, far east end of where the runway was. It then went off to the west a bit. Um, across into where you know Saratoga Springs and Disney and C used to be, all that good stuff. Uh, the northern side of that, and uh, you know, so there's actually still from what we can tell, and some from some of the older photos, there's a few buildings just north of of the uh, running track that uh, were there back in the 1950s and 1960s. So for any of you out there who people say, oh, what was the first airport? Uh, on Disney property, do not refer to it as uh, the Stolport because that's actually incorrect. So I don't believe, you know, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, who knows if anything was landed there 
um, when Disney was being built, if they used it for any scouting or, or uh, it's kind of far off the east of the property anyway. I have a feeling they, they just drove in. But um, so that's your answer. But that's going to bring us to one of Howe's expertise areas, the famed and much sought after information for is Stolport. Yes, that the Stolport was one of those great mysteries, which uh, as time goes on, seems to be unraveling more and more. And, and we're getting really good information finally about it, which is fantastic because when I first started going to Walt Disney World, it's like we were just casually aware that there was this airstrip sitting over there, but nobody knew exactly why it, what it was used for when it stopped uh but today we actually have really really good information about it which is i think fantastic so um so the fact of the matter is uh so maybe we'll back up a little bit and, and maybe just talk about uh what air travel was like in florida at the time and why there was a need for such a thing and then kind of what happened to it so uh in the early 60s when walt disney world was starting to get built um, you did not have Orlando International Airport. There was not a a huge uh, booming, ready-to-go airport. Uh, what you had was a Air Force base uh, called McCoy, uh, which was set up with big runways in order to fly uh, B-52 planes in and out of it. So it, it had, did have decent-sized runways, but uh, Orlando was not a, a huge mecca of travel by, by any stretch of the imagination. So there was a tiny little shared space um, for for jets uh so like eastern airlines had its has its first thing there were a number of smaller airports like the uh like the orlando executive airport uh which still exists uh in orlando i believe um but but there was nothing major so when disney came in one of the things that they really wanted to do uh or they thought they would need to do is actually build like a full-sized jet port uh to handle all of of this travel stuff so uh in in as we talked about in one of the earlier episodes down on the south end property, uh, there was kind of an indication that they're going to build what they called the airport of the future. Um, and they started to get plans together for that. But my assumption is, uh, like a lot of things that were going on, they were just uh, taxed money wise. Uh, I understand that they were trying to make deals with Eastern in order to get them to sign in. Uh, they were unsuccessful in doing that. So I think they just simply never got the money to uh, to build the full-fledged airport. And sort of simultaneously, uh, the deals were being made with uh, with the Air Force Base to try to turn it into a civilian airport as well, uh, which did start to finally happen uh, in the early 70s. So uh, little by little, uh, there was a small uh, terminal opened up for passengers on the other side, and then uh, they could shuttle planes back and forth between uh, between that airport and uh, and the one at Disney, which which is why uh, which is why the Stolport exists. So. Also happening in the 1960s at, at this time is this new concept of STOL aircraft, which is short takeoff and landing. Uh, NASA kind of pioneered the stuff in the uh, in the mid 60s. And there was talk of putting these kinds of airports in all kinds of major cities like Chicago, uh, New York City. There were even feasibility studies done uh, to see if they could put uh, these types of uh, of airports up on top of buildings in the city itself since there wasn't any place uh not a lot of places that you could do stuff uh, in the city itself, except for like LaGuardia. So um, there was a lot of exploration done. Uh, the first landing strip for that size uh, was actually built at uh, Logan International in Boston. And uh, there's just a, a ton of work uh, done around this. And there were a variety of aircraft that were developed uh, that uh, that fell under the auspices of the Stoll. 
uh, business uh, so they can start developing things. Um, so uh, when Walt Disney World uh, decided to do something uh, with an airport, a very small one, uh, they went for the still concept and the uh, the airstrip that we know uh, as it is today was built over by the Contemporary Hotel and the Ticket and Transportation Center. Uh, it's about 2,000 feet long, uh, which is, I guess, very short. Uh, it's big enough that I suppose you could probably land a small aircraft on there like a Cessna, but they were really not interested in doing any kind of private aircraft there. Really what they wanted to do was set up a commercial service. And there were three companies at the time uh, that had the proper aircraft uh, to do that. And just to uh, add, for those people who uh, I've studied different things in aviation and, and know a lot of, about aircraft, but 2000 is is pretty short. Your your average, you know, everyday uh, standard airport like like um, or Orlando International uh, or any other your your local airports are probably going to run anywhere from six seven thousand upwards to twelve thousand feet. So compare that to two thousand, and you're not going to get a uh, uh, any type of jet service in there, as, as how you know mentioned, it's definitely for these uh, sp- uh, specific type of aircraft uh, using that very very short space. Yeah, so these are these are commuter planes that were intended to go here. You know what we call puddle jumpers. So uh, and and these types of planes are very common uh, in northern cities. So like if you're in New York or Boston, there's a lot of these type of flights that go back and forth. Uh, as you get down to Florida, it's it's a little bit more rare. Um, which is interesting that there there were actually three companies at the time that were doing that. There was there was what was considered to be a, at least hoped for to be a bustling business uh, in doing these kind of commuter flights at the time. So um, there was Shawnee Airlines, uh, Executive Airlines, and then a third called VQ. Uh, Shawnee got started actually in uh, 1969. Uh, and they were at that time the premier uh, sort of air uh a, a premier uh, air carrier for these commuter flights. Um, oddly enough, they were a, uh, sorry, they got started in 1968. And oddly enough, they were owned by the root company uh, of Daytona Beach, Florida, who was the largest independent bottler of Coca-Cola at the time. <laughs> <laughs> so you get free drinks in the air. <laughs> yeah. So it was just this weird offshoot business. Uh that they had started. And I, and I think at the time the, the business climate of, of Florida was hoping to be improving. Uh, and they were hoping they were already doing a lot of these, uh, these flights between like Orlando, Jacksonville, West Palm beach. Uh, and this idea actually ended up killing all this, uh, not too long later, but at least there was a hope that there was a need for this type of service. Um, so, uh, we'll, we'll focus tonight on Shawnee cause they were the ones that actually managed to, to last the longest, uh, executive stuck it out for about two months, uh, and then it folded. Um, Shawnee managed to go a, a little bit longer. So they were, they were probably the main, uh, the main carrier that you, you might have used, uh, had, had you gone through. So, um, the, uh, the planes that they used were very interesting that they, they were made by a company in Canada called de Havilland. Um, the, the model number is a DHC six, uh, twin honor 200. So it's a, a very specialized aircraft, um, it has a fixed landing gear, so they don't retract. They don't come in and out of the airplane. They actually are just stuck there the entire time. Uh, they held 19 passengers and then a pilot and a co-pilot. And uh, oddly enough, these planes are actually still quite popular today. Uh, they ran through their production through the 80s, stopped production, and then another company ended up buying the rights. Uh, and they are producing these aircraft today with uh, slightly more powerful engines. It's, it's interesting that you mentioned the 19 passenger capacity because 
while it does hold a pilot and co-pilot, I'm curious if they flew with them. And the reason is that the FAA does not require you to have a co-pilot uh, for 19 or fewer passengers. Ah, so see. normally that's why those planes are uh, attractive to to uh, regional air airlines. Gotcha. Well, you know what? I could be wrong about the co-pilot. I assume that, but you may have the, me there. there. There is room for a co. I mean, okay. there is a co-pilot seat. I was on one in Vegas about uh, about five years ago. It's the one where the door blew open in mid-flight, which is a great story sometime, but probably not for the podcast. <laughs> uh, but uh, the the, uh, the on the flight, uh, you know, you have the passengers in the back, and then there is a co-pilot seat. Now, one of our passengers sat in the co-pilot seat. Uh, so but we just had the pilot. And then, of course, the door blew open mid-flight at 3,000 feet over the Las Vegas desert. And don't they touch well, we had a fish. passenger stood up and closed it uh, in, in mid-flight. Uh, so sometime if and if you ever ever meet me, you know, ask me to tell the story in more detail because it's it's one of those 10 minute stories I've told a hundred times in my life. But very few people can top, you know, yes, I was on a plane where the door blew open in mid-flight. That's crazy. Yes. Well, uh, well, apparently they're they're still very popular, uh, particularly with skydiving companies. That seems to be who's the primary user of of these planes now. And oddly enough, a lot of these planes, uh, I think they started production in like '68. A lot of these planes from that era are actually still flying. Yeah, and they're still totally functional and and still going strong. And it's an overwing aircraft, so that's why it's uh, probably preferred by sky jumpers because the the wings are up at the top. Ah. So that there's nothing to get in the way of the jumpers. They just open the door and down they go. Which, which is the plane that I was on. And the other reason is, yeah, because the wings are up for sightseeing, it's great because out the windows you just see down. I mean, there's no bad seat. You can you can see straight down to whatever it is they're flying you over. So, yep. Cool. Totally makes sense. Yep. Um, so we have this 2,000-foot runway. It's it's marked as number 34. And uh, there's not there's not a lot else out there. Uh, and just, just so another aviation buff thing, 34 is actually the compass heading of the direction. So that's ah. 340 degrees. If if it was 36, it would be due no, north. So that's 20 degrees to the west of north, and that's how that's what all the numbers mean on uh, on uh, airport runways. Excellent, excellent. Yeah. Uh, so they had basically four parking spaces. So as as these uh, two or three different companies would come in and out, there's basically a place for them to sort of like uh, just set the plane off to the side while the next one takes off. Um, I don't believe they had any kind of uh, building for like for passengers for waiting. It, I assume a bus would come up and pick you up and then take you off to another hotel. Um, there were plans that I've actually seen for uh, a tiny airport, which may have been intended for there or may have been intended for the the South property. Um, I, I don't know, and it was quite some time since I've seen that, but I, I have actually seen plans for a very, very small terminal, like what you would see at a at a, an executive like Cessna-sized airport today. Um, but that never really materialized. Um, the... Um, Production, or I should say, uh, flight started uh, to that airport on uh, October 22nd of 1971 uh, with two airlines, uh, with Shawnee and Executive. And there's a there's a couple of pictures floating around of the internet with Mickey Mouse standing on the runway, sort of like uh, leading the planes in from those two airlines. That was done for press purposes. Um, if you wanted to, um, and here's one of those things where. This must have been absolutely wonderful. So 
if your Eastern jet landed at uh, what would eventually become Orlando International, which was McCoy, you would take a 15-minute ride from that airport to the Stoltport, and it would cost you all of $7 per person for that trip. Wow. <laughs> and even in in uh, 1970, so that was 1972 money. Uh, if you adjust that for inflation, that's uh, $39.96. So I would much rather take, <laughs> I'd much rather take the 15 minute $40 plane ride uh, from the airport to the airport, then, then take a bus or a taxi, which costs way, way more than that. I think I, I looked at prices for like a sedan and it's like $81 per person. So that was a great deal. Um, there were numerous flights throughout the day, uh, nine or 10, uh, there at some points there were direct flights to Walt Disney world from some of their other, uh, locations as well. So you could come in from like Jacksonville and other areas besides just the Orlando commuter route. Right, but uh, the the executive stopped flying six weeks later. Yep, very so, very quickly. So it was only Shawnee that was doing the the regular flights, right? Yeah, supposedly this this third airline VQ, okay, uh, went for a little while, um, and they used uh, Piper Cherokee and Beach Bonanzas instead of the the Otter. Uh, I haven't seen any good hard data about that yet, so. Which uh, which airline offered the best view of Roy's cabin? <laughs> yeah, that would probably be Shawnee. That's actually you would have probably gone right over Roy's cabin. Yeah, yeah. Because yeah, we were landing to the port south, is actually yeah. right by it. So. Skimming yeah. the roof with the wheels. Is <laughs> the right. We're just gonna we're gonna do a flyby to Roy. We're gonna, bu- we're gonna buzz the Roy's. tower of Roy's cabin. Yeah. <laughs> Maverick. <laughs> so, so this went. For so we started on October twenty second, nineteen seventy one, and the very last Shawnee was the holdout airline. So all of this ended on December twenty eighth, nineteen seventy two. So that was pretty fast. Um, and really, what happened was the entire uh, sort of commuter airline uh, service, that entire industry, just kind of imploded. In Florida, um, besides doing these commuter routes, uh, Shawnee and some of the other guys were also doing flights to the Bahamas. And as soon as air travel picked up in Florida, what happened is the big guys came in uh, and started basically taking over a lot of these routes. Uh, and these were not big money makers. Shawnee eventually went into bankruptcy uh, in 72. Uh, and when they reformed, uh, they basically said that they had lost money uh, from the day that they had started for the the three years that they had operated. So it really wasn't anybody's fault. It was probably just a, a bad business uh, plan to begin with. And if you look at $7 per person, I mean, potentially they were undercharging. Right. Yeah. The, the I mean, the entire thing for as, as legendary as it is in the in the dorky Disney history community that, that, that we're in. I mean, the entire thing ran for 14 months. I mean, it started in October of 71 and the last flight was in December of 72. Uh, and then it never operated again. Now we did read, uh, you know, we'll talk about what, what it's used for now, which is basically storage of, um, of, uh, construction vehicles and trailers and supply vehicles and things like that, that Disney parks in it today, uh, but there was a story uh, that we read during uh, during our research here that uh, it was it was at least recently used in 2006 uh, 
ahead of a visit to the area by President Bush and a plane as part of the advance team landed there. They just moved the construction vehicles off. It landed uh, and and then presumably took off. I mean, it wasn't the president and it was ahead of his visit. Air uh, Force so, One just yeah it was it was not Air Force <laughs> One dropped right there uh, but but uh, presumably some kind of support vehicle and a lot of times what they do ahead of a visit like that is figure out you know if we have to get a plane in here can we get a plane in here that kind of stuff so and that's actually interesting because besides the air besides your uh, the whole industry kind of shutting down it's like the construction of Epcot actually ended up being the thing that they say killed uh, the airstrip so with the monorail line now running to the north and to the south of that that strip uh, that basically is in the direct line of a plane coming in so if a plane were to either overshoot or undershoot the runway you'd go right into the monorail yeah and if if you're not sure where this is and you visit disney world today if you take the the monorail between epcot and the ticket and transportation center just as you curve off of uh, off of the drive there to branch out towards Epcot, if you're looking down, you, you pass right by the Stollport. You can't miss it. Yeah, it, yeah. It, if you're going down Vista Boulevard towards uh, Fort Wilderness, you can look down, look down it as well. So, yeah, and the monorail really kind of paralleled it, so it must have only been from an emergency perspective. I don't know. I can't imagine it being too much of a concern. Given. Yeah, so I mean that's that's supposedly when it's so by by eighty two it was declassified off of the FFA FAA uh, routes. It was no longer an official thing. It still appeared on on the maps, but it was basically a you don't use this. It's it's gone. Right. They put the big X's on it. Yeah, I remember I mean, seeing the X's from the model. You could you could look over the trees and you could see it there. And I remember seeing it. Yeah, and I actually managed to track down uh, some of the airplanes. So uh, what was interesting is Shawnee actually leased those airplanes. They never bought them. So that that was probably one of the reasons that it was easy for them to just kind of dispose of it after they went into bankruptcy. Um, the one, uh, I, I tried to look for photographs of tail numbers. The the FAA takes a, a great pains to keep track of where, where all airplanes go. Uh, when they're bought and sold and leased and all that stuff. So so that's good. So uh, Shawnee uh, leased four planes. Uh, the one that I could definitely identify in photographs by the tail number was uh, N653DA. Uh, they lic- they uh, leased that one from Houston Metro Airlines uh, and returned it back to them in December 1972 uh, after uh, after they shut down. Um, that company eventually became uh, Metro Flight, and it continued to fly. And that plane was blown over in a tornado in Lawton, Ooh. Oklahoma, on April first of nineteen eighty-three. So that plane is dead. Uh, but some of the other ones that were uh, that were flown are still being used. Um, I found one in Germany being used for uh, for skydivers, and an, another one in France that's being used for skydivers. So the planes that flew at Walt Disney World are very likely still being used today. And if you you manage to visit one of those places, you could actually fly in one. But you're <laughs> uh, not going to land. At us yeah. if you have uh, if you've been on, on any of those tail numbers. <laughs> <laughs> Double check your stubs. So yeah, so the legend of the Stollport basically lasts. 14 months and it becomes a a giant parking lot plus and uh becomes the stuff of legend well i do i do think we throw that out there here if there is a listener uh, who either directly or knows someone who ever took one of those what were really only three or four minute flights between uh the the mccoy 
airport and uh, and and the Stolport. Anybody who ever took one of those flights or one of the longer ones from Regional City, we would love to hear to hear from somebody. All the pilots had Mickey hands on. <laughs> <laughs> I think of the convenience, though, right? The convenience of just landing and being whisked to your. Your, your hotel in a matter of minutes, right? I mean, just oh, it that, beats the bus. Yeah, forget the bus. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> just fly me in. And who wants to pay ride. fifty cents to park? I mean, I mean really? Yeah, I'll pay the seven dollars. <laughs> <laughs> well, how now? Now to celebrate this, you, you, we have some special things coming up, right? To kind of yes, we certainly do honor to honor Stolport. Um, so for our listeners out there, we are going to be working on some secret projects and uh, some secret merchandise that will be coming out for to honor Stolport and what we discussed tonight. So uh, be on the lookout for those in the coming months. Yes, we will We will tweet and Facebook and, and send out notices uh, as soon as we're ready to reveal all. Exactly. They're going to be good. They're going to be good. All right. So with that, uh, thank you, Hal. Um, JT, what do we got in this month's... Uh, listener mailbag i think you got a special tweet out to you right i did it was a special dedication tweet directed at me (laughs) um i it it made me feel warm fuzzy and excited because it actually it happened um so to give give some background what you've been asking for something two two podcasts ago um i i wanted a selfie of somebody rolling by the leftover pirate ship at the uh discovery island and you know nobody nobody uh sent a message nobody said anything and then finally just uh what was that like two three days ago was it um the the guy uh a guy sent us a selfie of himself that minute uh with the pirate ship in the background i actually heard somebody say it was gone recently but it's not it's definitely there. there and he uh he's gonna get a special prize so that's the uh that's my one big one for this week I got. All right, well, it's time for this month's Audio Rewind. Um, we had, wow, a lot of people wrote in this month, um, getting close to topping uh, last month's uh, incredible response. So we had a lot of people write in with the correct answer. And um, so this month's winner uh, was Joe Yost from Atlanta, Georgia. So congratulations, Joe. And um, we're going to set you up with, uh, what, what do we got? We got a notebook, right? Um, I have from Redbubble a Hydrolator number three notebook uh, from the Living Seas going to be sent out to our winner. And uh, got a, some stickers and a note card as well that's going to go with, to our winner. So thank you for submitting. So I think this month's was a little uh, on the easy side. I know a lot of people wrote in, knew it. Um, the horizon's end music uh, is the answer from the choose your own ending portion of it so we've got another one for you as well so uh, we'll get to the instructions in a minute but the idea here is uh, take a listen to what we have and see if you can guess what it is All right, so if you think you know the answers to this month's Audio Rewind, send your best guess to podcast at Retro Disney World. And this month, the winner, we're going to give away, I've got a um, 
This is from the Fraser Creations. It's a Cinderella castle. Stands about uh, three inches tall with uh, the tallest spire. It's a nice resin, uh, ceramic type uh, castle miniature, I guess you could say. It's got the moat and and the bridge and everything. So we're going to give that away this month. Uh, So get all of your entries in by October 12th, 2015. And we'll pick uh, one name from uh, all the correct answers and uh, give away the prize next month. For all those that enter, you'll be entered into the big prize drawing coming in December 2015, where we're giving away a replica Paul Hartley map from www.map.com. So once again, podcast at RetroDisneyWorld.com, entries in by October 12th, 2015. So this month, we're, we're going uh, to skip over film restoration. We do have one um, that uh, we had in mind, but we're, we are running a bit late. Uh, so we'll we'll bring that back next month. We're gonna do uh, we're gonna talk about a River Country film that we just restored, but also we need your help to continue to procure, transfer, and restore and distribute a couple of films. We've got um, some great 16 millimeter films, and we have a very tight budget to do those, and they're very very expensive to restore. So we've set up a uh, an account at Patreon.com. And uh, essentially, it allows you, the listener, to to pledge to to the project. And uh, we also give rewards depending on how much you pledge. And uh, we're almost halfway to our, I'm sorry, we're over halfway to our goal of $1,000 to restore these two very special 16 millimeter films. Um, so I do have to call out a thank you to those who, who um, are patrons this month and, and uh, supported us. We have Brian, Matt Fussfield, John Cox, Frank S., Kurt, Jim, Trey Snyder, Carrie Meister, uh, Kurt Shimala, Rob Hinkle, Jim Burmeister, and Daniel Wilson. So thanks to all of you for your pledge. Uh, for those that uh, received uh, one of your you know, special um, gift for your for your pledge, we'll be getting those out to you shortly. Uh, some of them the coasters, entire retro Disney World um, Epcot coaster sets, and you all receive early access to this podcast as well as the films that we do for the next year. So thank you very much. For those interested, if you'd like to support us, please visit RetroDisneyWorld.com forward slash films. And uh, if you can give anything from a dollar to five dollars, we'd greatly appreciate it. And uh, we'll get those films restored. So uh, before we close out, we do have a new segment uh, to our podcast. It's called Listener Memories. And uh, essentially what we've set up is a, is a phone number where you, the listener, can leave us a short uh, under three-minute message with your memory. Uh, we want to hear anything you've got to say. Uh, the number is 978-71-RETRO. So if you give that a call, you can leave a message with us. And uh, we did have a couple people who uh, left us a message this month. And uh, let's take a listen right now to the first one we received. Hi, I'm Jason Bentley. Uh, my mom and I used to stay at the Contemporary every year when we would visit, and uh, we would we watched uh, them building Epcot from the top of the world every morning when we would go upstairs for the breakfast buffet. And uh, remember the, the the server at the, the top of the world having a rough time explaining exactly what was going on and what that big ball was over on the horizon. And she goes, "Well, it's going to be a new park." And it's going to be something different, but I, I, I really don't know how to explain it. And, uh, and, of course, the next year it opened up, and the rest was history. All right, so that was our, our first uh, memory there from Jason Kennelly. Appreciate uh, him giving us a call and, and about watching the uh, Epcot be built from the top of the contemporary. So if you have a memory you'd like to call in and get on the air, give us a call at 978-71-RETRO. You can leave a message uh, up to three minutes, 
and uh, we'd love to hear from you. So give us a call. And uh, Brian, you wanted to go over a little bit about RetroCon, right? Yeah, JT and I were out there last weekend in Oaks, Pennsylvania, and uh, it was a two-day show. We showed off uh, some stuff from your collection, some stuff from my collection. Uh, lots of people stopped by the table. We had some people who uh, are going to go home and try and dig out their 8mm films to send to us of their trips to, to Walt Disney World. Uh, but we did have a bunch of listeners stop by the table, and we wanted to uh, thank Matthew Ellis, uh, who had sent us an email the day before. Uh, drove all the way in from Lancaster, Pennsylvania, with his family, stopped by the table, had a retro uh, Mickey Mouse hat that his uh, daughter was wearing. It was really a, a great thing for, for him to stop, and, and so we'll give a little shout-out to him and everybody else who stopped by the table. One thing uh, I took away from the weekend uh, we, we, we saw a lot of Epcot love, uh, people who stopped by people talked about some of the old attractions that they loved, but I had a, uh, a, a, a figment plush on the, on the table and even people who were not necessarily into, you know, the Disney world history, they all stopped and said, Oh my God, look, it's figment. Uh, so it was great to see all that. Uh, residual love people have for for figment from their trips in the 80s and 90s to the parks uh, and most of them said they don't have a ride there with them anymore do they wow i mean the the stormtrooper from endor that has the weird helmet stopped and was like check it out it's figment <laughs> he even <laughs> recognized him so this was this was jt's first uh first time encountering cosplay uh, yeah it was just it was really mind-bottling as they was taking it all in <laughs> So that, uh, well, that's the that's the report from Retrocon. We did record uh, a little snippet of JT and I, so maybe we'll play that somewhere in in here. Yeah, and uh, Brian, we are going to plan to go next year, right? We'll plan to be there again. I've said it. I'll do it as long as you guys are coming. Yeah, we're going to help. We're going to help uh, Brian out this year, uh, next year rather. I'm, so. I'm flying if we do this again. Yeah, boys, oh, yeah, how, how can come up? Yeah, it looks like a fun time. We'll hang out in the city of brotherly love. So absolutely. All right. Well, with that, we're going to wrap it up here. Um, appreciate all of our listeners, as always. If you can, uh, give us a, a shout-out at podcast at retrodisneyworld.com. We also have uh, all of our unique merchandise for sale at retrodisneyworld.com forward slash support us. Look for some new designs coming out. In fact, we do have a, a new series called Mesa Verde University Store is now open with notebooks and all sorts of other good stuff uh, celebrating Horizons with some fan art. Uh, and our sponsors, well, TicketMama.com for all your Orlando ticket area needs. Visit TicketMama.com for less than gate prices. And by Rental Car Mama. When renting in Orlando, visit RentalCarMama.com for discounts at Advantage Rental Car and other firms. And also by OrlandoVacation.com, vacation homes and discount hotels for the savvy Florida traveler. Well, I thank uh, WWMap.com for sponsorship for the large uh, prize at the end of the year. And if you're interested in sponsoring any portion of the Retro Disney World podcast, please email us at info at RetroDisneyWorld.com. Uh, once again, thanks to all of our listeners. Keep the emails and phone calls coming. Uh, we love hearing from you. If you can give us a shout-out, a review on iTunes, that would be fantastic. Let your family and friends know about us. And uh, feel free to give us a shout-out Twitter and all those good things, and uh, especially our email address, podcast at RetroDisneyWorld.com. So, guys, anything else to say before we wrap it up? Thanks to George and Becky Miranda. With that, Brian, take us out. Follow Todd McCartney and Retro Disney World on Twitter and Instagram at RetroWDW. On Facebook at Retro Disney World. And for all things Retro Disney World, including exclusive merchandise, visit us on the web at RetroDisneyWorld.com. 
On Twitter, follow our hosts, Hal Bowers, at GoAwayGreen. For JT Couser, at Hoagie's Garage. And you can find me on Twitter and Facebook, at Brian P. Miles. On behalf of our entire flight crew, thanks for soaring with us. To unfasten your seatbelt, just push down on the red button on your right. Be sure to gather all your carry-on items from the underseat compartment and exit to your right. Have a great stay here in Epcot or wherever your final destination may take you.